I do trust that you're praying for Centerpoint Bible Church, and I want to just update you on a few things relative to our corporate body. Um, I know that there are many individuals that have personal needs, and um, often, and we will pray for some of those. Great to see Bonnie Kisner here. Bonnie coming through surgery here already. Great to see you this morning, Bonnie. And um, so I know there's a lot of personal needs that we have in our lives right now, but I want to just take a moment and just update you on some things that relate to us corporately. Being reminded, last week we talked about the fact that there's something significant about us joining here together as a body of believers that doesn't happen any other time. We talked about the fact that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. But when we come together corporately, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So there's something significant that happens when a body of believers gathers together for worship, for for the reading of Scripture, for the exposition of Scripture, for prayer. There's something significant about that. We need to understand that as a body of believers. So related to us corporately, I want to just update you on a few things and ask you to be praying. First of all, you know that song that we were just singing, if you, if you remember, that was a very significant song to us when we made the decision last year to sell that property that God had really supernaturally dropped into our laps. And we were, we were willing to put that up on the market and, and, and said to the Lord, whatever you want to do. And we would, we would use this sort of physical reminder of what we did. We just said, Lord, whatever you want to do, we trust you. So we drop it at your, at your feet. Palms open, we're dropping it to you, Lord. Now that process is still going on. We do have a potential buyer. You do need to continue to pray. The contract process is we have have an offer from a buyer. We're now in in some last steps of negotiation. We are this close. I know last week I said, or two weeks ago I said we were this close. We're now this close to finalizing that deal. So pray that God would just move this thing forward, that the purchase of that property would happen. That'll be a huge benefit to us as a church. And, and we're so close. But you'd be praying with us that, that God would finalize that, that deal. And then I think most of you are aware that just about a month ago, we were, willing, we were able to close on a building over in Spring Mills Community just off the T.J. Jackson Drive. And um, we're praying now for the transition. We're shooting towards March 15th. That's our goal of when we will be having services at the new location, at the new church building. A lot needs to happen right now. Um, myself and Mark McKenzie just met with an architect last week and, and kind of went through some of the details of what we were looking to do over there. So just that, that process is, is moving forward. We're still hoping and praying towards a March 15th date. Now, here's why that is so significant. And again, we're holding this with our palms down, right? We are, we are holding loosely to this. But as we strategize and we think about things, if we can get in there March 15th, that puts us over there a month before Easter. And we want to take advantage of that, that cultural dynamic that people become a little more aware of spiritual things around Christmas and Easter. And so pray with us that March 15th could happen. Some of you have been in, the, in that new facility. Some of you were there yesterday. You can see that it's a great opportunity for us. So be praying in that regard. And then the last piece I wanted to just share an update on is, you know that we just finished up our investment campaign, and the challenge was for our body to be praying about what they would do above and beyond their regular giving. And um, it, was, it was really just a challenge to our regular people who are here with us week in and week out that they call this their body. And, and I want to report to you how that went. So above and beyond our regular giving, our, our body has committed that over the next three years, they're going to give about $250,000 towards this, this financial need that's before us. Last week, we had what we, had a, what we called our kickoff offering. And we praise the Lord that over last week and the week before, about $25,000 of that money was, was given as unto the Lord. So that's about 10% of our, of our commitment above and beyond our regular giving. That is a praiseworthy note right there. That truly is. I've just been overwhelmed with thankfulness. I truly have. And, and you're going to hear it today in my preaching. I'm overwhelmed with thankfulness that God has given us a church that is willing to sacrifice and give for for the kingdom. 
And I know many of you are, are willing and ready to do what needs to be done that we can reach our community. One way we do that is through our financial giving. And I praise God for those that, that said before the Lord, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going I'm to give above and beyond my regular giving. And, and you communicate that with us. And we, we thank you for that. And we praise God for that. But that's not the only way that we give. I'm thankful for the people, and I've already referenced this, that, that there was a need for, for physical needs in people's lives. And this church responded in a second. And every time we put something out like that, we respond. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful yesterday for, for small little children there and, and old gray hairs like myself there to, to just show God's love in practical ways. I'm thankful for those that will respond to the ministry needs that are coming. Listen, folks, we got to see that God has given us an opportunity when we go over to Spring Mills area, when we go back into that area, we're going to be surrounded by thousands of people. And if history is any indicator of what's going to happen in the future, we're going to have people that come into our church that just see that there's a building and they show up. I was in a meeting yesterday and somebody asked me about what's that big blue banner there in front of that building. And when I told them, oh, that was our church. And we're coming to the area and they were excited about it. Now, with that opportunity, is going to become a responsibility for us as a body. And I want you to be praying about how God is going to prod you to invest in people's lives. And I've got two specific ways that I really want to challenge you today just to let you know of what's coming. The first one is to those that have children in your home. You that have children in your home. Okay, you've got, you've got teenagers, you've got, you've got elementary-age children, you've got nursery-age children. I want to challenge you right now. I want you to be praying about how God would have you to invest in some opportunity during the week, during the midweek, to disciple children and teenagers. We want to see the parents of children in our church invest on a Wednesday or a Tuesday or a Friday, whatever night we end up landing on, investing in the discipling of our children and our teens. If you're a person that has a child in your home, what we're, what we're asking you to pray about is coming out on that night and investing your life in discipling teenagers and children and bringing your kids with you and you'll plug into a one or whatever that ministry looks like or the youth ministry and, and you'll invest your life there. So that's the first thing. I really want you to be praying about that. Listen, I know in my life, I, God has allowed me to have the joy and the privilege of raising four children. And my kids aren't perfect, okay? Believe me, I know better than any. But I want you to know something. When we were early on in our parenting, early on, my wife and I did not grow up in strong Christian families. We didn't know how to parent. We truly didn't. And I remember as a very young parent having like, you know, a two-year-old and a brand new baby in our, in our home. And I remember there was a man that came up front in front of the church and he talked about, he, he had raised children, okay? He was a gray hair then. So I guess I'm his age now. Wow, it just struck me. Man, that's really tough to realize. Anyway, let me get back on track. And he said, when we were raising our children, every time that door swung open, we brought our kids to church. And I remember hearing that and looking at who this man was and what I saw in his life. And I remember thinking, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that with my children. And listen, my kids are not perfect. But I'm telling you right now, is now a nearly 50-year-old man that's got a 25-year-old child and a few years younger, that without the investment of other people in the body of Christ, without the relationships that my children had with Sunday school teachers and youth workers and nursery taker-carers of and, and deacons and all, the, without those relationships my children would not be walking with Christ in the way that they are today. If you're a parent, I want to challenge you right now, 
Be prepared. Let God prepare you to take advantage of that opportunity. We'll have them at soccer. We'll have them at basketball. We'll have them at lacrosse. We'll have them at band. We'll have them at drama. We'll have them at clubs. We'll do all those things. And then in the opportunity for somebody to invest in their life, mm, take advantage. Now that's the first challenge that I, I want to give you as we think about the future. Here's a second one. For those of you who no longer have children in your home, oh, you know who you are. I'm almost in that seat too. Now I'm, we're going to be sad to see our youngest go, but listen, we know that it's, it's going to be here soon. For those of you that no longer have children in the home, I want to challenge you on something. You invest your time. You invest your energy. You invest your life. Invest the experience, the wisdom, the the opportunity that you've had to invest in other people's children. And where I want you to really pray about doing that in the future is on Sunday morning. On Sunday morning. I want to challenge you who know, you no longer have children in your home. All right, you, you're on the tail end of parenting. And it's real easy now to kick it into neutral and just kind of drift, right? I did my time. Maybe you say that. All right? I want to challenge you that on Sunday mornings, when we're over at this new building, I want to challenge you specifically to invest your life in other people's children. I want you that you've raised your children. Maybe you're a grandparent now. I want you to watch the nursery on Sunday morning. I want you to teach the third graders on Sunday morning. I want you to be with the first, second, and third graders. I want you to do that. You say, well, why should I do that? I already did my time. Because you're a follower of Christ. And so you serve. You serve. And if we, that kind of fit that mold, fit that life dynamic, that, that we've already raised our children, or maybe we don't have any children yet. If we invest our lives on Sunday morning in the children that are part of our church, that gives the parents that are here with us the opportunity to connect with other people. I appreciate those who have kids that work in our nursery. I appreciate that. But I want to challenge you that don't anymore to think about how you might invest in other people. I praise God for the church because I didn't know how to parent. I didn't know how to husband. I didn't know how to do these things. And God gave me a family, a body that I could look to and I could learn from. And the good that that there is in my life, I know it's Jesus through his spirit working in his body in my life that has produced that. So those are some things for, for our body that are on my mind this morning. Let's pray together regarding those. Lord Jesus, we do ask you to continue to bless your church here, Centerpoint Bible Church, not just us, but those in the community that are partnering with us to disciple people, to reach people, those in the community, the churches in the community that are, that are preaching your gospel, that are teaching your word, that are loving people, that know you and love you. God bless your body here in Berkeley County, in West Virginia, in the surrounding region, and grow it, Lord. May we be faithful to plant. May we be faithful to water, but you give the increase. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the opportunities you give us to bring meaning to our life, to fulfill your call on our lives of making disciples. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I told you, I'm kind of overwhelmed with thankfulness right now. Just a lot of things that I'm very, very grateful to the Lord about. And so I'm kind of in the the middle between two different series right now of preaching. 
So what I'm going to do this week and next week is talk about thankfulness. I want to talk about thankfulness. Today, I want, to, I want to deal with personally how we can be thankful before the Lord. Today is about our personal thankfulness. And I want to challenge you today towards the worship of thankfulness, the worship of gratefulness personally in your life. And then next week, I want to talk about thankfulness as a body, corporately how we thank God together and how that looks and how that should function. And so two weeks on thankfulness today. And to get there, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke. So if you would, go with me to the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 7 is where I want to be. And here's my theme for today. Here's the whole point I want to make today. Built upon God's Word, it's this. That true thankfulness, true thankfulness, not the put-on thing that you do once in a while because you feel obligated to do it, but true thankfulness is awakened in an unpayable debt forgiven. That's where true thankfulness lives. True thankfulness. It's awakened. We come alive with gratefulness, with thankfulness, when we realize an unpayable debt has been forgiven. Now, I want to warn us today against kind of the semblance of thankfulness that we will see this week. And Thanksgiving, I love Thanksgiving. I'm looking forward to a great meal on Thursday. Okay, I really am. And we will hear all kinds of talk about thankfulness. But I think we need to be just perfectly honest with ourselves. Is what we will see and what we will do this week really thankfulness? I mean, consider this. On Thursday, we will nationally express our thankfulness. We will gather around tables or around a football screen, and we will maybe awkwardly stand here at the dinner table as maybe your grandmother or your mom or your father says, okay, let's go around the table, and everybody say one thing that you're thankful for, and you'll go around the room, and you'll be like, I'm thankful for my car. I'm thankful for this. I'm thank-. Right? Right? Now, I'm, listen, that's fine and well, well and fine. You go ahead and do that. But think about what we will do On Thursday, we will nationally express our thankfulness. And then that evening, or maybe some of us on Friday, we will then totally change our clothing and we will nationally express our materialism, our envy, and our greed on Black Friday. Think about what we will do. Oh, thank you that I have all these things. Now I'm going to go buy more. That's what we're going to do. And that's fine. You can Black Friday shop. There's nothing wrong with that. Okay? But I want to challenge us with what true thankfulness really is. The television was invented in 1928. Did you know that? It was released commercially in 1938. Wow, that's a long time ago. My dad tells a story from the 1950s, somewhere in there, okay? It's 55, 56, I don't know when it was. He lived out on uh, Piedmont Street in Kaiser, West Virginia. And the, the story was that, that there was a, somebody in the neighborhood on the street down the road from him had a television set, and they were going to watch it. And so they all, my dad talks about him, he must have been like 12, 13, 14, 15 years of age, and they all went to this person's house, and they all, they crowded in this living room, and, and there's this, I, in my mind's eye, it's like, it's like from that movie, uh, The Christmas Story, or whatever it is, you know, you got the father there, you know, rah, 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 he's, he's all grouch, and he's got a white t-shirt on, okay, and he's, it's all dirty in my mind, he's maybe got a cigar hanging out of his mouth, he's trying to get the TV all set up, banging on it, that kind of stuff, you know, and, and the room is now filled with people, as my father tells the story, I'm, he's an exaggerator, just like me, so who knows what actually happened, but, so they're all in this room, and they're, and they're trying to watch this little television screen, and he talked about it's just all like that, you know, that fuzz. Just you really can't see anything. Remember that? Okay, you know, just going through, and they would adjust the vertical hold. Remember the vertical hold? How many remember vertical hold? Because it would do like this, and you adjust the vertical, and it would just kind of stop. And he had the horizontal hold, and he's adjusting that, and all of a sudden, there it is, there it is. 
and they're watching this football game. And my dad said he couldn't see anything, nothing on the screen. And everybody, oh, look, there it is. There, there it is. They're watching the game. And they couldn't see anything at all. And that was the 50s. In 1966, television became color. Color TV was now released and programs were available. In 2000, the DVD was released. In 2006, the flat screen TV. And right after that, the Blu-ray. In 2010, the 3D television came out. In 2019, I looked on Walmart, the Walmart site, walmart.com. I stopped counting at 50 different models of television that are now over 75 inches in, I think that's a diameter measurement. Se- over 50 models, 75, that's more than this. This is 72 inches. So three more inches than this. These huge televisions that we have in our room that we can watch television. And you will on Thursday, and you'll watch the Detroit Lions get beat, you know, like every other year. Sorry, Jason, uh, where are you? I don't see you, but just the way, it's just the truth. And Justin, yeah. So... What if your 75-inch TV was gone? What if your 3D TV, your flat screen, your color television, what if it was gone? Let's just use that as an example. If what you had was gone, the material things that you have right now. We're using television. Let it represent your vehicle, your home, your clothing, your abilities, whatever. What if it was gone? Could you say thank you? If all you had was that 1950s television, you know, fuzzy screen, could you say thank Is this really thankfulness? when it's dependent upon the material possession that we have, is that thankfulness? I'm not so sure it is. Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 19. You're in Luke 7. We're coming back there, but just listen to this. It's very simple. 1 Thess 5, 16 to 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God and Christ Jesus for you. I'm not so sure that we understand what thankfulness truly is. I'm not so sure that it's Thanksgiving that we're going to celebrate this week. I'm not so sure that that's really what thankfulness is. I'm not so sure that looking at our 75-inch TV and saying, oh, I'm so thankful for that television, I'm not sure that's what thankfulness that First Thessalonians is really talking about when it says give thanks in all circumstances. I think what that really is is settled materialistic appreciation. I, am a, I, I appreciate my settled materialistic bent. If I could have the 95-inch TV, I would, but I got the 75, so I'll settle for that. So for that, I will be thankful. That's not what God is talking about. True thankfulness is awakened. It's awakened in an unpayable debt forgiven. Luke chapter 7, go with me there to verse number 36, and let's see this played out in real high-definition quality. Luke is the author of the Gospel of Luke. Luke was an educated man. The detail that he gives in this passage alone blows expositors' minds. It is, it is, it is so packed, filled with with vivid detail. It is clear that Luke was an educated man. The Greek in the Gospel of Luke is far advanced among many other of the books of the New Testament. And this particular passage is filled with such vivid pictures of what is happening. I'll try to explain some of it after we read it. Let's read and let the Spirit of God really bring it home for us. Verse number 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. 
And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, which I really find interesting, by the way, that it says reclined at table, not at the table. Isn't that interesting? Just little details like this that are here that just bring truth. This is a dinner party. This is an event that's happening. This is not, hey, we're having supper today. This is, a, this is an event that has been planned. And they are now at table. This is a special moment that this Pharisee named Simon has called. And now they're all gathered here, and he has invited teacher Jesus there. He's in the Pharisee's house, and this woman now, this woman of the city who was a sinner, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. This is a small container, be very, very small and very, very valuable of ointment. This would be a, a, some type of incense, a very strong-smelling liquid. And standing behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And then Jesus tells this short little parable. He says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Now, a denarii is about a day's wage, okay? That's a common laborer's wage. So let's say it's $100, all right, a day's wage. So one person owed 500 denarii, that's $50,000. And the other, 50, so that'd be $5,000. So a factor of 10. But it doesn't really matter how much it is, because verse 42 says, when they could not pay. So it doesn't matter whether you owe $5,000 or $50,000. If you can't pay it, you're in trouble. And that's what happened. When they could not pay, the, the, the owner of the debt canceled the debt of both. Jesus said, now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, Jesus said to the Pharisee, you have judged rightly. Then, notice what he does here. He turns, he's been speaking to Simon the Pharisee. Now he turns to the woman that's laying there at his feet. He says, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And then he says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Now then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? You know, who does this guy think he is? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, by the way, one of the beautiful things about the gospel of Luke is the way it portrays women. There are women all through the gospel of Luke. And what's so significant about that is when this was written in the culture this was written in, women had no value. That was completely wrong. But it's the reality of the culture that they were in. And Luke often speaks and writes of the women that Jesus loved and cared for and valued. Men, 
And ladies and women, we are all equal before the Lord. And now he looks to this woman who was a sinner, a woman of the city. And we'll know what that means in just a minute. And he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is a phenomenal account of something that really happened. And I want it to be a great lead in to Thanksgiving for us. Because I want you to thank the Lord for your TV. All 75 inches, okay? I want you to thank the Lord for the food that you have on Thursday and for the family that's sitting there with you. I want you to, I want you to thank the Lord for your home and for your car and for all of that stuff. But I want to ask you, what if it was taken away? What if it was taken away? What if the television was gone, the home was gone, the vehicle was gone, the family was gone? Because it can happen. What if they were all gone and it was only you left alone and you had no one there and you had no television to look at and you had no turkey to eat and no vehicle to ride in and no home to sit in? Could you at that moment give thanks? You could. If we understand what this woman understood, if we understood what Jesus taught to Simon the Pharisee, whether he got it or not, we don't know. But if we can get what Jesus was bringing truth, we will celebrate true thankfulness this week and into the rest of our lives and into eternity. Because true thankfulness is awakened, it's brought to life when you realize there's an unpayable debt that's been forgiven. So let's walk through it quickly, okay? Let's first, let's first talk about the party that this Pharisee had called. So there were some cultural expectations that went along with this dinner. It's just like if you came to my house, if you, came, if you visited my house, there are some things that you culturally expect me to do. You knock on my door, I come to the door, you expect me to invite you in. Come on in. Come on into the house. Come on in. And when you come in, if you're going to be there for any amount of time, I say, do you want something to drink? Glass of water? And the bathroom is right down the hallway here on the left if you need to go. Please sit down. See, these are cultural expressions that we just expect. And what they say when we practice them is, I respect you as a person. I value you. In this culture, it seems strange to us what their cultural expressions are, but we need to know what they are. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to figure them out from the passage, but let's just highlight them. When you came into this place, you should have been, the person who's called the dinner party is expected to greet, especially this honored guest of the rabbi, Jesus, to greet them with a kiss. Now, I know that seems culturally different to us. If I come into your house, you probably wouldn't kiss me. But in this culture, that's what they would do. They would kiss often to be on the left and on the right cheek. And and it's, it's, it's no different than shaking hands. The hand is very, very dirty in this culture. Think about it now, okay? The hand is very, very dirty. You protect the cleanliness of your face. So it's a much more hygienic way to greet someone, to kiss them on the cheek. That's all this is. There's nothing sexual. There's nothing romantic about this kiss, but it's expected. Secondly, you've been walking around dirty streets covered with animal droppings in open, open sandals. And so when you come into the room, what should happen, especially at this wealthy individual, this Simon the Pharisee must be wealthy. Okay? You're expected that a servant would come and wash your feet. Why? To bring comfort. You're not embarrassed of the smell of your feet, what you brought in with you. And so you wash. It's a hot climate. It's a dirty climate. So you wash the feet for comfort and cleanliness. And then lastly, what should happen is that same servant or maybe an upper echelon servant will come and just put a drop of incense on your head. Why is that? So you don't smell. They don't have right guard deodorant, folks. And so they smell. They do. And so there'd be incense that'd be dropped on your head. And the whole idea is when I'm talking to you, I'm not worried about my body odor. I'm not worried about my feet that are covered with animal whatever. And, I'm, and we, I can be comfortable now because you respect me. You honor me when I come to your house. None of that happens here. None of that. And it's an offense it's like you come into my house and I'm laying there on my couch and my kids are there and, you, and you're knocking on the door and I'm like, what? What do you want? 
Can I come in? I guess. And you walk in the door, and none of us get up. None of us get up, okay? We just lay there, okay? What do you want? What would you think about my reception of you? That's what's happening here. Again, this is in a courtyard, okay? Very, very likely the way that the houses of the rich people were made is there would be an inner courtyard and the home would be built like a, like a square rectangle around it and inside would be a courtyard, likely with a fountain and a garden and a table. And the way that the table worked, it would honestly be a table about like this thing here. This is all the tall that it would be, okay? And what would happen is you would have like a cushion that you lie on the ground or maybe even just several blankets and you would, you would lay on your left side, leaning on your left, elbow with your feet stretched out away from the table. I know this is weird to us. It was 2,000 years ago on the other side of the planet, right? And so you would lay on your left-hand side and you would eat with your right hand, that same right hand, okay, that's been part of the rest of our accounts many, many other times, and you're eating with your right hand, leaning on your left-hand side, your feet stretched out beside of you. So that's culturally what you expected to happen. Now, let's talk about the characters that are there. You've got Simon the Pharisee. Luke, on three different occasions, identifies him as a Pharisee. That's not by accident. A Pharisee, a Pharisee, a Pharisee. Pharisee literally means the separated ones. These were the religious elite. And in this culture, they didn't view them like we do maybe religious elite in our culture. You know, there are times, I don't want to tell people I'm a pastor because that immediately kind of caused people to be like, oh, Okay, that's our culture right now. Hasn't always been that way. Won't always be that way, but it is right now. But in this culture, this religious elite individual, the Pharisee, was honored. He was separate from other people. That's who he was. But there's this woman. I want you to notice that she's been there the whole time. It's interesting to me that Jesus says since he first came in, She's been kissing his feet and anointing his head and, and trying these tears since he first came in. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my shoes, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss from the time I came in. Verse 45. She's been doing this. She's there. What's she doing there? Who is she? The passage says that she is a woman of the city who was a sinner. 99% of the time, this is a prostitute. She's a prostitute. She's a woman of the city. That's a loaded term. This woman sells her body to support herself. For a widowed woman, or for an an unwed woman whose father had died and left her nothing, it's the only way she has to support herself, quite honestly. And so she makes a living in close proximity with evil men. It's what she does. And she's there waiting for Jesus to arrive. You say, what's she doing in the Pharisee's house? This is a social event. There's a courtyard here. The community knows the word is out. There's a dinner tonight. And so those in the culture, those in the surrounding areas are allowed to kind of come and watch from a distance. And she's there. And she came with her alabaster bottle of perfume. She knows this one Jesus brings forgiveness. And so she's waiting there. And when Jesus comes in and the Pharisee gives him no cultural expressions of respect, she's on her face at his feet, weeping and washing and anointing. And that might sound a little bit sensual. And that might sound a little bit inappropriate. And that might sound a little bit even sexual. You might be like, what's going on here? And listen, this is all this woman is known. People who live around this kind of behavior, the regular marks of shame, she's grown callous to them. Letting her hair down in public in this culture was a very immodest thing to do. But she's grown callous to these regular expressions of modesty. 
And all she knows is the Savior is here. And he knows her past. Everybody knows her past. It didn't take the divine character of Jesus to know who this woman is. They all know she's a woman of the city. And she comes with a trade craft. What do you think she did with that alabaster bottle of perfume? She sent her body with it. So that she practiced her, her skill, she was more effective because of it. But she breaks it and pours it out on Jesus' feet, and the room fills with the scent. And Jesus is there, the Savior of the sick. Look what Luke has said right before this. Look at Luke 7, verse number 33. Read this with me. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. He's calling out the Pharisees here who rejected John the Baptist. says he didn't eat, he didn't drink. You say he has a demon. The Son of Man, that's Jesus' favorite term for himself. He has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Oh, yes, he is. So we have that played out here right in front of us. Moving along quickly, Jesus tells a story. Look what, look what it is. We already referenced it. It's not, it doesn't take much in the area of explanation. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed, we'll say, $50,000, the other 5000 And when they couldn't pay it, he canceled the debt. Debt forgiven. They couldn't pay it. They couldn't work it off. They had no hope. Have you ever been hopeless? Absolutely hopeless. I don't mean a tough time. I mean there was nothing you could do to pay back. There was nothing you could do to earn for you. You were desperate. Penniless, maybe. You had no opportunity of providing for yourself. Have you ever been there? Likely, you haven't. It's hard to get there in our culture. It's hard to get there when it comes to money in our world. It's hard to get to that place. Somebody's always available to help here. But these individuals, they know. If they don't pay that debt, they're going to debtor's prison. You know how long you stay there? You stay there till you pay it off. So you die there is what you do. And so the moneylender forgives it. And Jesus asked the obvious question, who loves more? The Simon, Simon the Pharisee, now he's, by the way, given a name. Jesus finally calls him Simon. Simon doesn't call him Pharisee. Luke says his name is Simon. He says, well, the one that's forgiven much loves much. And this woman, verse number 47, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And folks, This is the point. I want your thanksgiving. This is the very point of this, of the parable and of the party. I want your thanksgiving to be overflowing with gratefulness. I want you to go into Thursday and Monday and this afternoon overflowing with thankfulness. But in order to get there, in order to get there, you got to be forgiven much. In order for us to be that thankful, you got to be forgiven much. So how are we going to handle this? What are we going to do? we got to go out here and rob banks, be axe murderers, prostitutes, thieves. Is this what we have to do? Do we need to store up the knowledge or the experience of our sin so at the end of the day we can say, oh, I've been forgiven much, now I will love much? No. No, that's not what the story, that's not what the account is trying to bring home. What we need to recognize is that you and I have been forgiven much. Whether you've done much or not, it doesn't really matter. I think that's why Luke doesn't tell us she's a prostitute. He tells us everything but, everything but, but he doesn't say she was a prostitute. He could have. 
He could have. There's a Greek word for prostitute. He could have said she was a prostitute, but he doesn't. He doesn't. And I love that about this. Because you don't have to be a prostitute to know you've been forgiven much. You don't have to be an axe murderer or a thief or a scoundrel or any of those things to, be for, to know that you've been forgiven much. You've got to know who you were. I remember coming across this, and I might have shared this with you one other time. I remember coming across this one time and thinking, well, this isn't quite fair, God. This isn't quite fair. I mean, I got saved at 16 years of age. And I had done a lot of, you know, pretty rotten stuff in my 16 years. But, you know, I hadn't done this or that or that. And so how am I going to ever love much? It's not fair that this 60-year-old guy, you know, who did all these wicked things, now look how much he loves. Listen, that's a wrong way of thinking. So I got three quick words I want to throw at you to to. To, to build up your thankfulness. The first word is depravity. Depravity. I want to take a few minutes and tell you how far it was you missed the mark. How far it was that you did not hit the target. That what it means when God says that we are born sinners. Scripture describes you and I before we are in Christ in three ways regarding our sin. In three ways regarding our sin. First of all, before the Lord, we have inherited guilt. In Adam's sin, we all have the curse of sin. We have inherited guilt. It's called imputed guilt. Sin. Romans 5 says, just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. You and I have sin imputed to us. That means the moment you were conceived, the moment you, the moment you existed, you and I were a rebel against God. We were rebellious against God the moment we existed. It's imputed sin. We have, we have Adam's curse upon us. And you and I are born sinners. We are born guilty before God. We inherited it from our forefathers. You didn't have to earn, you have to do anything to earn it. You had it at birth. God declared you guilty the moment you existed. Oh, wow. That's imputed sin. But that's not our only problem. Not only do we have imputed sin, we also have a sin nature. This means that part of our nature is corrupt. That means you can't help but sin. Sin is always there seeking to devour you. You and I have this nature in us that is bent towards sin. We have a guilt before God. We also have a nature towards sin. That means that you are not a sinner because you sin. No. Hear that? You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. You know how people tell you that you're a sinner because you took those cookies from your grandmother? That's not why you're a sinner. No. No. You were born a sinner. Your nature is to sin. You have sin imputed to you. So we have imputation of sin. We have inherited sin. And we have personal sin. These are the things that you and I do. These are the lustful thoughts we have. They're the lies that we tell. We're the people that we have anger in our heart towards. This is the greed that we feel, the envy that we feel. This is the gossip that we share. These are the feelings that we have that we know are bent against God. And they're always right there in front of us. Why? Because of the fruit of a poison root. Oh, you may not be as bad as you could be. You may not have done every single thing wrong that you could ever imagine. But you and I both need to know this truth. In your natural state, you and I were fully capable of the absolute worst sin that you could ever imagine. We have been forgiven much. 
so much that when Christ hung on that cross and brought us forgiveness, that was our next word, depravity, forgiveness. When he brought, when he won for us victory over sin and forgiveness, that he cried out to his heavenly Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's sin. We can get high and mighty like Simon the Pharisee and look down upon this woman laying at Jesus' feet, washing his feet, violating every cultural taboo that there could ever be, and think high and mighty thoughts about somebody committing some kind of sin. But the truth is, we were already a rebel. We already had a rebellious nature. And we were already living out that rebellion against our God. And that's where true thankfulness resides. So you can take my TV. You can take my home. You can take my car. You can take my turkey. You can take all of that. But you cannot take away the forgiveness that Christ has given. And that's what awakens thanksgiving. Do you know him? I mean, honestly, do you know him today? Let's not not fool around here. Have you put your trust in Christ? Are you still carrying your sin? Is it still your burden to bear? Are you still carrying it around on your back? Not planted it on Christ? You don't have to do that. He fully forgives. He looked at that woman and said, You've been forgiven. Not because you broke the jar. Not because you washed my feet. Not because you spread the incense. No. You've been forgiven. Why? Look at the last verse. Why? Because of your faith. She had put her faith in Christ, and he forgave. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the truth of the gospel. Lord, that you take sinners as us, such that we are rebellious against you, revealing it all the time. Lord, pushing against your spirit day in and day out. That's who we were. And Lord, you have won for us the victory over sin and death and Satan and hell. And Lord, we praise you for that today. Oh, may we be thankful today, truly thankful for what you've done. And Lord, may that then overflow in love. For we love you because you first loved us. You call us to give thanks in all circumstances, and I know no other way to do that. No other way to do that than to look to the cross. So we thank you today for the forgiveness that you granted that only came through your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's his name that we pray. Amen.